0: Pray with me. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? Father in heaven, I pray tonight as we look at your word that my words would accurately reflect the contents of this passage, the intent behind the writing of this passage. Father, that we would understand more about you And Lord, we would see clearly the dangers of false worship and understand truly what true worship is. Amen. That's very loud. Uh, It's always um, a little bit nerve-wracking for me to get up here. Um, Those who stand here will understand because you are standing up here telling people what God says. Uh, It's a very dangerous thing to do. If you get it wrong. So so far we've seen in Mark a lot of things happening. We've seen miracles. We've seen the murder of John the Baptist. We've seen amazing crowds gather. We've seen some teaching. We've seen the religious leaders at the time attacking Jesus, trying to discredit him. Uh, And it continues. Tonight we have another occasion where... The religious leaders are coming and trying to prove to the people that Jesus is just a fake. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, so to start with, what I, the, the way I want to tackle this is I want to try and get you to f- understand a little bit about um, the culture at the time. You need to know uh, what it was like. Why did this happen? Uh, hopefully, as we're reading that, you might have seen Jesus' reaction to uh, the complaint of the Pharisees. And it's like he went postal. He just flipped out and, and just he nailed them, right? They just say, "No, oh, look, they didn't wash their hands. And Jesus just blew up. Why? What's the big deal? Uh, most of us get in trouble at home for not washing our hands. What's the big deal? Uh, Doug, can you put the map up, please? So, Jerusalem... These guys, the Pharisees and the scribes, came from Jerusalem and then they went to Gennesaret, up the top there. That's about 160 kilometres as the crow flies. So these people have travelled 160 k's to tackle Jesus, right? In their eyes, this is serious stuff. So what's the problem? Now back in... Back, thanks, Doug. Back in chapter 2, they complained to Jesus about the disciples. They walked through the grain field... The disciples picked some grain and ate it. They were hungry. And the Pharisees went off and said, they're working. They're doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Why? What do you, you know? Aren't you their teacher? Why are your disciples doing what's not allowed? Right? So they had their rules and the disciples are not obeying the rules. But now these guys have come from Jerusalem again. And they come to try and discredit him again. They're still trying, and they keep trying, and they keep trying until finally they just kill him. They can't discredit him, so they kill him. Now his fame had spread like wildfire. Just in chapter six, in verse fifty-six, right just before this, and whenever he, wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside. So wherever he went. They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they, they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So the people were just flocking to him. Remember, nearly 20,000 people gathered to hear him speak and he fed them. So he's drawing big crowds. In these days, you didn't have cities like Brisbane with a million people. The communities were spread out. They weren't high-density living. It wasn't North Lakes. So for people to gather together, 20,000 to gather together, there's a bit of effort. And these people are making the effort to come and hear Jesus. But they weren't coming because he spoke about things like he talked about in the um, Sermon on the Mount. They were coming to see the show. They're coming to see the healings. They're coming to be healed. Just like today, people go to some of these uh, high-profile people, especially the ones that come out from America, to see the healings, to see the show, to be healed, supposedly. All right? So it hasn't changed, but this is what was going on. These people were coming, but the difference between then and now is Jesus healed them completely, permanently, and immediately. But he's being attacked, and the Pharisees continuing to attack. So they probably were humiliated back in chapter 2, so now they're going to have another go. This is what it says. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Then there's a bracket. So you look at your Bible and you see brackets, right? So Mark is writing to Gentile readers. He's putting in some explanatory statements. When you look at the corresponding passage in Matthew 15, it's a lot shorter. Matthew doesn't have a lot of this stuff. So Mark is explaining what that means. What do they mean, hands that were unwashed? and explains it. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So the obvious question is, what's this washing? Is it what we do? Is it the same reason that we do? Well, no, they didn't have push soap things right? it's a ceremonial thing it was a ritual thing back in Exodus 30 and Leviticus 11 there were laws put in place for the priests to ensure that when they came and performed their priestly duties they were not ceremonially unclean so God had laid out some things you must not touch carcasses of animals if you do you'll be unclean and you need to wash you need to wash your clothes and there's a whole lot of r- rules about this So obviously, when you think you're super spiritual, you need to look at that and go, okay, so what do we do to make sure there's no chance of being unclean? What are we going to do? And that's what the Pharisees do. They came up with all these things, wash before this, wash after this, wash just in case. So they wash, they go to the marketplace, they come back, they wash, because they may have been defiled when they went to the marketplace so the idea is I need to do all I can so I'm not unclean now the danger is for the Pharisees they were putting on the normal people things that were applicable to the priests so the stuff that the priests had to do was taught as obligatory as as mandatory for everybody to keep if you wanted to be as holy as me well you need to do this this is the sort of attitude that's going on with these guys. Now, in the text it just says they wash with the hand. Literally, it can be translated as wash with a fist. So there's a bit of talk and various commentaries about how they did it. Maybe they washed like this. Who knows? What they seem to agree on is they pour water over the hand like that. And then they hang the hands and they pour water again. A bit like doctors do, but it doesn't really matter because the, the point of how they washed is really not, not the issue. So verse 2 says they saw some of the disciples washing, right? So some washed and some didn't. Jesus obviously had no issue with this. He didn't make them all wash their hands. It's not like when your kids come to the table and you say, if you washed your hands, no, well, get down and go and do it. Jesus is not like a parent sitting there telling these kids to wash their hands. Obviously, it was a matter of choice. Wash your hands? Don't wash your hands. Either way, I'm happy. Now, in case you think, you know, I'm making that up, turn to uh, John chapter 2 in your Bibles. And you should remember, this is the the first miracle that Jesus did at the wedding. John chapter 2 and verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So this was a normal thing to have jars of water. Now, 20 or 30 gallons in our speak is between 70 and 115 litres. So these are big jars of water. So obviously you need a bit of water to do all the washings that went on. Jesus didn't have a problem with it. He didn't say, why on earth have you got those jars of water? In Luke 11 and verse 37, it says this. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. Verse 38 The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. So Jesus obviously didn't think this idea of washing was something that he had to do. But he also obviously thought, if you want to do it, that's okay. So there are matters in the Christian faith, in Christian life, where It's a personal choice whether you do it or not do it. This was one of those. So, obviously, Jesus is seeing this and he has a certain view of this ritual washing. And the Pharisees, though, had a different view. And that's why Jesus did what he did. So what do you do when you want to discredit a leader? The Pharisees thought this ritual was super, super important. Jesus obviously didn't. The, pharaoh, the, the disciples thought the same as their master. They didn't think the same thing. So what do you do? Well, we see that the answer to this all the time. You know, flights in helicopters can lead to all sorts of problems for workers, right? We had that with, um, what's her name? Julie Bishop. Broman no bon- Bishop, sorry. Bromham <laughs> Bishop, go fly in a helicopter and all of a sudden, you know, it blows up. When a sport, sports team loses, who gets the blame? The players? <laughs> Never. It's the coach, it's the captain, we do that all the time. We criticise the leader for the failures or the perceived failures of the workers, the players, the disciples. Criticise Jesus for what we think his disciples have done. That's why they said, why do your disciples... You're the teacher, you're failing, right? That's verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples, your disciples, not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So you're responsible. Jesus, it's your fault. You're responsible. So, what you know, walk according to the tradition of the elders. What's this tradition? Judaism, don't forget, was a religion based on historical facts. The Old Testament, they had the Old Testament at the time of Jesus walking on the earth. And it's full of facts of history. God did things. God said things. God gave laws, everything. So Judaism is the religion of the people of Israel based on the Old Testament. It contains laws, we know that. The first five books of the Bible, known as the Torah, the law, when you hear about the, in the New Testament, it talks about the law and the prophets. Right? The law is the part. The first five books of the Bible, where God has given the rules for his people on how they must live. But what had happened over time was the people had added to these things. Oh, It's a little unclear, I need to clarify it. Uh, it's a little contradictory, we need to fix that. People were adding to the word of God. Oh, we need to make sure that people can't do this, so let's erect barriers around things. We need to make sure that the people can't do the things that God has said not to do. Because we're the religious elite, we need to protect the people. But this is what happened. They kept adding and adding and adding. There ended up being... They they broke the Old Testament law down into something like over 600 laws. There were rules. And every one of those rules came with a multiplicity of extra little things. But it was all oral. It was not passed on. These extra things that were added were not written down. Not until the third century. So when people were talking about the tradition of the elders, this is stuff that was handed down. Duncan passes it to Greg, who passes it on, right, and so on. It just got passed down orally. It's not written, so people who thought I need to be a very spiritual person tried to memorize this stuff. The Apostle Paul was one of those. He tried to memorize this. He was remember. He says he was uh, proceeding. He was he was achieving more than his fellow Pharisees. Because he had such a great mind, he could keep track of these things. But how can you keep track of hundreds and hundreds of laws? That's what they did. Tithing, Sabbath, everything. Diet, the lot. But just remember, passing something on orally is not wrong. You can just pass on history, right? Pass on what the Bible says orally. That's not wrong. It's not the problem. It was the fact that they added to it. So all these extra rules that they came up with, this is what they passed on and this is what's wrong. Now when you start adding to God's word, how do you know when what's added is right or wrong? Well, in this case, for the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they would have arguments they would be violent sometimes and physically violent. They would have arguments amongst themselves what they meant and whose interpretation was superior. They were putting themselves above God. These people were saying, we know better than God because God can't communicate clearly. So we know how to help God out. And Jesus is not saying thank you for that. Now, in today's world, if there's a disagreement, uh, if you disagree with what someone has said, you know, like in the workplace or even in church, what are we told to do? Look, just go and talk to them nicely. Don't don't be a nutcase about it. Just go and speak nice. Is that what Jesus said to do? said, verse 6, And he said to them, Well, did I have prophesy of you, you hypocrites? Ah, uh, I think that's a code of conduct violation, right? Like if that happened at work where I am, I work in the government and they're just, they're bizarre about all this sort of stuff. It's nice to be nice to people, don't get me wrong. (laughs) Although I do have a reputation. (laughs) I believe it's nice to be nice to people, right? I've been told. But that's not what Jesus did, he just launched onto an attack. He's just going after these guys. This is not a case of two people disagreeing over something that's a matter of indifference. This is two people disagreeing over something that is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. But these guys didn't know that. Jesus then quotes Isaiah twenty-nine thirteen. This people honours me, and he's talking about the Pharisees. This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commands of men. So that's God speaking in Isaiah. And God is saying, they honour me with their lips. They're giving me lip service like Joe mentioned earlier. They're saying they're my people. They're saying they worship me. But we know that God sees past the lips. We know God sees the heart. In vain do they worship me. This is about wrong worship. And I have to say, maybe Duncan planned this whole weekend out. I don't know. Uh, Let's give him the credit for it. (laughs) No chance. But yesterday we had a workshop in the morning for those of us involved in serving, uh, running a service in, in any fashion, any and all fashion. So these guys, these guys, those guys. He gave a devotion at the start and he talked about worship. What is true worship? Because that's the idea of what we're doing here. This morning in his sermon... He preached on the same thing. So I was almost going to say, look, I don't have to get up tonight. There's nothing to say. I don't need to speak. But he said, no chance. So in vain do they worship. This is about true worship. This is the crux of this text. What is true worship? It's not, because look what he says in verse 7. In vain do they worship me. This is what it means to do vain worship. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus is saying, what you're doing, passing on these teachings, is vain worship. For the Pharisees, their hearts were far from God. Far from God, They weren't close to God at all. We heard this morning about drawing near to God. These guys were not drawing near to God. In fact, God says the opposite. Their heart is far from me. You know you're far from God. You can tell. You feel empty. You feel drained, like Duncan mentioned this morning. But the true believer knows that, confesses it, and asks God to help him. These people knew they were far from God and they thought they could get back there through their own efforts. So they keep these laws. They make up these laws and they try to keep them. So it's vital we understand this point: vain worship means you are far from God. But the Pharisees didn't just have that as the problem. They actually encouraged other people to do the same thing. For them, it was about bringing everyone else to their side. Don't leave the people there. Come along, live like I live. Look at me, and I holy, do likewise. Again, uh, sorry, Duncan, I'm just going to quote you again. Yesterday, he said this when he started. And, and this is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. And that's in quotes and all sorts of stuff that makes it say that Duncan is not Jesus. You have the privilege of leading the people of God in the worship of God. Pharisees, you have the privilege of leading the people of God in the worship of God. Do you understand what you're doing? So yesterday we were trying to get an understanding for all of us that stand up up here and lead all of you. We're leading people in the worship of God. You really better get it right. Um, I'm going to a few quotes from John Calvin. Um, love John Calvin. No apologies. Uh, he wrote a, a hundred-page um, letter in 1543 to a German emperor and a bunch of princes under him and it was called on on the necessity of reforming the church. And so he's trying to tackle the abuses that were going on in the Catholic church. They were doing exactly this. The Catholic church was misleading the people exactly the same way as here. And he was pointing out that the people, the priests, everybody in the Catholic church, they were doing this when they're trying to help the people and show the people what it means to worship. This is the belief about all the things that they had. Whatever they do has in itself sufficient sanction, right? that means approval, provided it exhibits some kind of zeal for the honour of God. So John Calvin saying, whatever you do is good, as long as it looks like you're doing it for the honour of God. Not true. Not true at all. You don't get a chance to just do whatever you feel like. You do what this says and nothing more. So the verse said, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. That that word doctrine uh, is the Greek word didaskalia. We get the word didactic from it. So those of you involved in school and teaching, you know what didactic means. It's about teaching. It means specifically Oral teaching. So Jesus is saying, You're teaching people orally these things and saying them as if they're commandments of God. Now, the problem is that the Pharisees had a different view of God to the one that's presented in the Bible. They thought of God in their image. They made Genesis says, God said, let's make man in our, own, in our image. The Pharisees said, let's make God in our image. And they did. So when human minds try to make it God, it's pretty weak. And that's what happened here. These guys made God in their image. He cares about all the minutiae of life. He wants you to do this and this and this and not this. He's delegated the responsibility to us, so you need to listen to us. This is the God that these guys created and is not the God of the Bible. Now, Jesus has just launched into them. He called them hypocrites. He said, this is what you're doing. He summarises it in verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So he's saying, you leave the commandment of God. You have left the Old Testament You've gone away from it. And you're now holding to the tradition of men. You are holding to stuff that you've made up. You are putting human teaching above God's word. If you're ever in a church and you hear stuff taught that puts this in second place, then you need to say something. It's wrong. You must never, ever, ever let that happen. Jesus is saying, you're rejecting the authority of God's word. God's word is authoritative. That means it's in charge. Nothing else rules. Then he tells them, right, so the next few verses, he's giving some examples. He's saying, and this is how you've done it. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Right, so he's repeating what he's just said then he gives the concrete example for Moses said honour your father and your mother that's the fifth commandment then he said whoever reviles father or mother must surely die that's Exodus 21 verse 17 and it's literally it just says that whoever reviles or curses or dishonours father or mother must surely die so the Old Testament was pretty clear obey your mum and dad Honour your parents. Don't dishonour them because otherwise it's the death penalty. But you say, this is verse 11, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that's transliteration of the Greek word. So it's not a special word, it's just what it means. And again, Mark translates. That is given to God, it's an offering. So if you say to your parents... Whatever you would have got from me, right in your old age, I was going to look after you. But whatever you got from me is given to God. That means bad luck. I can't give it to you, I'm giving it to God. I might give it to him now, or I might give it to him in the future. Either way, it's going to God, not you. Verse 12, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. So if the people were saying, the Pharisees were teaching, that you could say, what I had, which was going to be used for the benefit of my parents, is given to God. Sorry, Mum and Dad, you just miss out. You have to get by or whatever. They decided, there was a conflict between the fifth commandment and then Numbers 30 verse 2 If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge he shall not break his word he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth So God says on your parents Numbers says if you make a vow to God don't break it There's obviously a conflict in their minds So what do we do? Uh, Where well, one of them has to win, uh, let's go with the one that says, Don't worry about the parents. That's selfish. Just like today, and don't take this as applicable to what I said about being selfish, but just like today, in our church, we look after our ministers, we pay our ministers. So back then, the religious leaders were. Looked after by the people. They bring things to the temple. There's offerings and they looked after by the people. So if uh, I could see a chance to get stuff, if I'm a Pharisee and I could see a chance to get stuff that you might give to your parents, I just need to tell you, uh, you need to you know, give it to me. It's good for you to give stuff to the church, not to your parents. And so that's what they're doing. They're saying it's holier to make a vow to God than to honour your parents. Now, there are no contradictions in the Bible. There are none. Any apparent contradiction, you put down to your lack of understanding. And that's just basic, right? There are no contradictions. So these guys are seeing a contradiction, a problem where there isn't one, but they're making it up. Verse 13... When you do this, you make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So these guys, Jesus is saying, you are making void the word of God. Now, it's an unfortunate translation. They use the word void in the ESV. It actually, the word translated void means to deprive of authority, to annul or abrogate. So... He's saying, I will take God's word off the pedestal of authority and I'll put human tradition on there. Now, I would say that these guys have never read Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's in the Psalms. They had the Psalms. Why wouldn't they read that and feel guilty? I I, I don't know. I got no, I got no answer for that one because that's that seems pretty obvious. However, if you put your cynical hat on, these guys are reading it and says, "My thoughts are really good. I'm doing exactly what you want. There's no grievous way in me because I've kept the law perfectly." But that's not what they're saying. This is saying. This doesn't say, "Search me." O self, and know my heart. It says, Search me, O God. So when you say, Search me, O God, you are putting yourself in God's hands. But they weren't doing that. Now, one of the things to realise out of all of this is that when you have a really, really low view of God, you will have a really, really low view of Scripture. If you think God is uh, sitting off, he's not really interested, he makes laws that are contradictory, that need your help, uh, he can't communicate very clearly, um, he's not really that authoritative, then you think, oh, well, the Bible is okay, it helps, but it's not enough. We need to add to it. We need to come up with extra stuff. Maybe we need to say that some of these things are not clear. Jesus is not really clear on about homosexuality. It's just, you know, I don't see it. If you have a low view of God, you will have a low view of scripture. If you have a really high view of God, if your view of God is one that says he is above human comprehension, yet he has entered our world, If your view of God is that he is perfect with no blemish, no sin, he cannot sin, he cannot lie, then you will not have a problem accepting his word as it is, complete, untouched. So if he, God, is communicated with us, then everything that he has communicated to us will have the characteristics of him. It's perfect, it's clear, it's authoritative, it's sufficient. All of these things, all these words that are used to describe scripture, which I wish we had time to go into. We don't. There's so much here to say about the word of God and how Jesus viewed it. But the key thing is, the word of God in Jesus' mind and Jesus' words needed to be above their human tradition, but it wasn't. In Psalm 119 verse 99 is another verse which I don't think the Pharisees would have liked. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies and my meditation. I'm pretty sure the Pharisees wouldn't have let anybody say that. Nobody is going to come to the Pharisee and say, I have more understanding than all my teachers. So our worship of God must be spirit driven. It can't be based on what we dream up. So when you come here, it can't be thinking, oh, what are we going to do? I'll make stuff up. You, know, you can be creative, but it must always be in line with what the Bible says. I'm going to quote John Calvin again. God rejects, condemns, abominates all fictitious worship and employs his word as a bridle to keep us in unqualified obedience. When shaking off this yoke... We wander after our own fictions and offer to him a worship, the work of human rashness, how much soever it may delight ourselves. In his sight is a vain trifling, nay, vileness and pollution. He used strong words. Do you think about false worship as vile and polluting? The advocates of human traditions paint them in fair and gaudy colours and Paul certainly admits that they carry with them a show of wisdom. But as God values obedience more than all sacrifices, it ought to be sufficient for the rejection of any mode of worship that is not sanctioned by the command of God. Worship of God can only be done by those who have the indwelling Holy Spirit. It can only be done by those who hold firmly to the word of God. This is what it means to worship in spirit and truth. The Holy Spirit applies the scripture to our lives. That's true worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to be truthful and honest in our worship of you. Lord, help us to see ourselves as you see us. But Lord... We are grateful that you did not leave us, that you have given us a way out of that mess. Father, we thank you for your word which reveals the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. Father, we pray that we would not be critical people of others, but we would be careful. But Lord, we would always be seeking to uphold the authority of your word in the lives of all we cross. Of all things that we do, Lord, we pray that the authority of your word would be the thing that drives our worship of you. Amen. God never ceases to amaze me. Um, Peter mentioned Psalm 119 in our last song. The very first words are, lamp unto my feet, light unto